Happy New Year. So glad that you're here. <clears throat> whether you're brand new at church or whether you're an experienced kind of church person or somewhere in between. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go to a book of Numbers in your Bible. So turn in Numbers in the Old Testament. And if you didn't bring a Bible, you're welcome to borrow one of ours, or it's our gift to you. You just keep one. The ushers are coming in the aisles right now. You wave at one of them, and they'll be glad to spot your Bible uh, this morning. So I'll tell you a little bit about this series as we go into it. Over the years, I've come to recognize that one of the most spiritually vulnerable times in a person's life is immediately after they've had great success, after they've had great triumph, after they've experienced victory. You see it in the life of King David. When did he plummet into his affair with Bathsheba? Back when he was a humble shepherd boy? No. It was after he was at the pinnacle, the king of Israel, and had conquest after conquest. That's when he was vulnerable. And then I think of Elijah. When was Elijah tempted by the devil to sink into the pit of despair and depression? Before he took on the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel or after? It was after that triumph. It was after God showed up in such a powerful way. Soon thereafter, he goes plummeting into the pit of despair. Throughout Scripture throughout history, you have example after example after example of a person who got to the top and then crashes. Just when they'd gotten there. Why is this? I think it's because 2 Corinthians 2.11 points out. It's because Many times they weren't alert of Satan's schemes. And they got outwitted by him. First Peter 5.8 tells us plainly, look, the devil is, roams around like a prowling lion, seeking whom he can devour. He's always on the lookout for somebody to attack. And consistently, it seems a person is particularly vulnerable after they've had great triumph. So after the incredible year that God has given to us here at Faith Bridge, com communally, together, when might we be most vulnerable to the wiles of the devil? According to my calculations, right about now, <laughs> after stepping forward together, locking arms together, moving ahead with a spirit of generosity, the likes of which exceeded even my wildest thoughts and imaginations. Yeah, I think it would be right about now that the enemy would love to pounce on us and hijack the good things that God has been doing as we go into this new year. I think this might be just why, long around Thanksgiving, when I was praying, Lord, what is it that we should talk about in the new year? He kept bringing this thought of the seven deadly sins to my mind. 
It's like, what is that? I've always heard about it, read about it, but I don't even know what that is. Is it biblical? No, it's not biblical. You can't look at the back of the Bible and find the seven deadly sins. It's not a scriptural term. No, it's a list that was created by theologians in the Middle Ages as they sought to drill down and figure out what are the attitudes and the character traits most detrimental to a person's relationship with God. And at first glance, some of them don't really seem all that deadly, right? Why worry about gluttony or laziness or even, well, the subtlest shades of greed? I mean, when you got murder, you got political tyranny, you got ethnic hatred, you got religious persecution, you got racial injustice and violence. Aren't those a lot more deadly? Those should be the, the deadly sins, right? Now, these who came before us centuries observed if you swim upstream from any and all sin to the headwaters of sin, Pope Gregory the great 1,500 years pointed out, you know what sins you'll find trickling up there at the headwaters that turn into the gushing rivers downstream? These seven. Lust, anger, envy, pride, greed, sloth, gluttony. And so I think we do well to think of them as quite serious. Again, those in the Middle Ages who were forming the, this list, it start, apparently it started off at eight, then they brought it down to, to about seven. But they thought of them not so much as the deadly sins, but as the capital sins. Capital meaning first or head, the seven leaders of the wicked armies. Their seriousness isn't so much within themselves, but in their ability to generate even more dangerous, sinful offspring downwater. Now, to be clear, my goal in tackling these seven deadly sins, these first seven weeks of the year, is not that we'll wallow in despair and feel like, oh my gosh, what a loser I am and whip ourselves into oblivion. No, 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 that's not it at all. As we titled the series, we want to find the remedy. I want for us to be fortified. I want us to experience victory together as a church and you individually in your own lives. That's why I felt like the Lord was saying, this is what you need to move into. To the end that we might sin, send sin back to where it belongs this new year. And so if as uh, Stephen Covey wrote some years ago, there are seven habits to highly effective people, these might well be thought of as the seven habits of highly destructive people. <laughs> They're the patterns of life which, if we let them take control of us, will unravel all the good in our life, leading to misery in our lives and into everybody's lives around us. So, 
of the seven capital sins, can you guess which the leader is? The most capital of the capital sins? That's the one we're going to talk about. I think I heard it. Pride. Because it's the source or the chief component behind and underneath every other type of sin. Look at this. Pride convinces lust. My pleasure comes before any of your concerns and certainly before God's priorities. Pride convinces anger. If I don't get my way, somebody else is going to have to pay. Pride convinces greed. The more I have, the more I'll finally be satisfied. Pride convinces laziness. Somebody else should do this, not me. Pride convinces gluttony. I'm the Lord of my body. I'm in charge of my life, not God. Pride convinces envy. I deserve better than I'm getting right here. I deserve what you have. So pride is the oldest sin in the universe, and God won't stand for it. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 5, 5 says plainly, God opposes the proud. He stands in opposition to the proud. You want to pick a fight with God? You just let some pride well up, and you can be 100% certain that God is not on your side now. He stands against you. And the next part of the verse says, and he's going to bring you low. <clears throat> so we see it in countless passages. But the one that I want us to look at today is a story from the life of Moses. I guess you could say it's, it's one of the passages that got left out in our Moses series last fall. Just didn't have enough weeks to do it. But I want to look at it today because I think we see a very clear example of pride in it. So in Numbers 12, we'll look. But first, before I read it, let me just give you a little background to what's going on here in Numbers 12. First of all, you remember there's Moses, who was the, the chosen one from God who would go into Egypt and would speak to the Pharaoh, let my people go, and it would lead the Israelites eventually out of captivity where they were in slavery to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And he's going to lead them on that journey towards what we call Israel, the promised land. That was who Moses was. Now, you remember from the series that we did last fall, if you were here, I think it was the very first installment. You remember how when Moses was born, he was born with a death sentence on his life. Why? Because the Pharaoh had grown very concerned about all of these Hebrew, all of these Israelite baby boys that were coming along, and he figured, man, there's like several million Hebrews now, and they're good slave labor. Well, what if they get together and they try to overthrow what's going on here? So he ordered that all the baby boys be thrown into the Nile and drown. And you remember what Moses' mom did, Jacobed, so clever, so creative, so prayerful. She made this little papyrus basket that would float, and she put Moses' little baby body in it and set him in the Nile. Technically, she was following the law. And she had the uh, hope and the plan that one of Pharaoh's daughters would come out bathing and would see it and would have pity 
on that little baby boy. And that's just what happens. But do you remember the person who she sends tracking the, the basket along the way? It was Moses' sister, whose name was Miriam. So she'd been in his life since the very start. She'd helped to save his life. And once he's a man and once he's now leading the Israelites, she's right in the pack. Uh, she's helping Moses the whole way. As a matter of fact, it says in Exodus 15, when they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land and the waters closed up on the, on the Egyptians who ch chose to chase and follow them. Um, do you remember Moses breaks into song and leads the people in praising the Lord? And then so does Miriam, particularly with the women, it says. She breaks into the song of praise. And, and so I guess you could say she was the director of the women's ministry. And so this is who Miriam was in Moses' life. And then there's one other, and that's Aaron. Aaron was the brother of these three. So you have these three siblings. And you remember why Aaron is along for the ride. Aaron's along because Moses was feeling insecure about his speech impediment. We don't know exactly what that was, but we just know that he said, God, I can't do this. I'm not a very good talker and speaker. And so God finally exasperated, says, fine, you can take your brother and he speaks fine and you'll tell him what I tell and, and he'll say it aloud for everybody. And so that's who Aaron was and that's who Miriam was. And you have to have that background as you go into the passage. Um, here. So you just know that uh, though Moses had to deal with a lot of discouragement, though he had to deal with a lot of grumbling that was happening uh, among the Israelites while they're going through the desert uh, in a protracted journey that should have only taken a couple of weeks at the most, he knew I can depend on my family. I can count on Aaron. I can count on Miriam, right? Maybe not. Let's look. Numbers 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Incidentally, let me just digress. So did you, what is that talking about here? We know that Moses was married to Zipporah, and, whose dad was Jethro. And so some scholars think, well, maybe Zipporah was a Cushite, but others think, no, I think at this point, Zipporah had died and he had remarried and had a second wife and she was a Cushite. Doesn't really matter. The point is what happened next. Miriam and Aaron, they began to talk about Moses because of his Cushite wife, verse two. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard us, verse three. Now Moses was a very humble man more humble than anybody else on the face of the earth. Four, four, at once the Lord said to Moses, Arian, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, and I speak in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. So I speak with him face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of God. So why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them, and, they, and, he, and he, God, left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, 
Miriam's skin was leprous. It had leprosy. It's become white as snow. And Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant, infant coming, into, coming from its mother's womb in its flesh, half eaten. So Moses cried out to the Lord, please, God, heal her. I want to notice, I want us to observe together three things that we're going to see in this text about pride. And so if you're a note taker, here's the first one. Pride breeds contentment, discontentment. Pride breeds discontentment. What was going on here? Miriam is feeling discontent. She's like, wait a second. I protected that little baby boy when he was in denial, and I've led the women's ministry. I'm just as good as, as Moses is. Why does he get all the glory? There's this discontentment that's going on. What was driving it? Pride was driving And pride is always what drives the discontentment in us. You look in the mirror and you say, you know what? I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not slender enough. I'm not muscular enough. I'm not kind enough. I'm not hairy enough. I'm not popular enough. My kids, they're, they're not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. Our house isn't good enough. My car isn't fast enough. You know what's going on? Anytime you have this discontentment in you, you know what's, what's, what's brewing underneath that discontentment, pride. And you know what's driving it? You're comparing and you're competing. You're comparing with something and someone and you're competing against them in your mind. And this can take a superiority form and it can take an inferiority form as well. You've been around a person who's like, I'm just no good at anything. Let's have a long lunch and talk about all my problems. What's going on there? It's inverted pride. I want the attention on me. I want it to be about me. And that's exactly what Miriam was doing. And that's why God was like, no, this is wrong. It is sin. We're not going to have it. And so <clears throat> he's rather severe about this. Um, God was with them. Discontentment. Think back to where sin began in the Garden of Eden. What do you have there? You had Adam and Eve who had everything. Everything in the world. Well, not quite everything. Everything except just one thing. For them, life was a bowl of cherries. You got it all. And yet they saw the apple or whatever the forbidden fruit was. And they said, no, 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 we're not happy. Yeah, that's what we really want. That discontentment comes in. And so what do they do? They move into the driver's seat. And they say, in essence, to God, <laughs> you know, God, you have done really well. <laughs> this is really a good place. It's a good world. It's beautiful. And look at all this stuff. It's really, it's, it's all good. It's just about this one thing. You, you said not that fruit, <laughs> 
but we want that one. And we're not going to be happy until we have it. In fact, we think we deserve that one. And what do they do? In essence, what they said is, we know better. I mean, yeah, you're God and everything, but we're pretty good too. We think we got this thing figured. It's, it's going to be all right. Don't you worry, God. We got this taken care of. To which God said, no, you do not. It was pride that got him kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Go back even before then. Who was the archangel of the whole heavenly host of angels? Who was second only to God? It was Lucifer. And Lucifer, you can't get higher than second to God. But that wasn't quite good enough for him, was it? No. Isaiah tells us in chapter uh, 14, verse 13, I will ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. I'll ascend above the top of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. Why? Well, I'm Lucifer. I deserve that. Why does God get all the glory? I think I'll have some of it. To which God says, no, you will not. Why is God so upset about pride? Because it sets us in a position of self-worship. No longer are you worshiping God the giver of all good gifts. No, now it's all about me. And we do this. You do this. I do this. Have you ever said something like, you know, by this age, I'll be there. And by this age, I'll have this much. And by this age, I should have that promotion. I should have that office. I should have that rank. You know, I, I, maybe I'll even be at the top by that point. You say, but wait a second, aren't you supposed to have goals? I mean, we can't really like make progress if we don't have goals. Are you saying don't have goals, Pastor Ken? No, I'm not saying that. Goals are good and even necessary. But boy, is it a fine line. That's what I'm saying. You've got to watch out because what starts off as a godly goal to use your gifts and your abilities that God has given to you and all, boy, you can slip so easily across that line. How I remember learning it in the early days of our church. Pride, <laughs> it was residing inside of me in a way I didn't even realize. I'd been married for several years at this point. The church was probably five, six, maybe seven years old at this point, going along swimmingly. Things were, we'd had meteoric growth, and there was excite, exciting things happened. And, 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 and we had set out to, to see lives changed and, and souls saved and disciples made, and it was happening. And there'd even been some, some um, articles that had been written about us in and, and, and other publications around the country. And it was just so exhilarating and so exciting, but something in my heart bit into that fruit. And somewhere along the way, what it started off, I want to see souls saved and life changed and disciples made, turned into 
I want this church to be the biggest, the best, the most famous church in North America. That's what I want. Oh, don't think I ever said that out loud. <laughs> I'm far too savvy for that. <laughs> I knew that's not socially acceptable. But the net result was I was terribly irritable. Suzanne will remember well. Part of it's because I needed medication. <laughs> Seriously, Zoloft really helps. <laughs> okay, so. <clears throat> but the bigger part of it was that something was really driving me on the inside that was cancerous. I'd been trained by some of the nation's great leaders and pastors of the late 90s, and any number of them had said, you're going to go far. You're going to do well. Whatever you do, blah, blah, blah. And I was believing all that stuff. As far as I'm concerned, I, I was saying, well, what does Sean Watson said last night? I figured... Somebody's got to be great, so why not me? <laughs> By the way, Deshaun Watson is awesome. And I asked the Lord, and he said he'd get to pass on this sermon. Okay, you don't. <laughs> but we'll give him one on this. In my case, though, this is cancerous. What's going on inside of me? And it was making me miserable. And other people around me, it was making miserable. Anytime our church didn't step forward, didn't grow. I got mad. I got mad at our staff. I got mad at me. I, I got mad at God. Hey, I'm down there doing my end. Why aren't you doing your end? Sometimes I, I was harsher on staff than I should have been. And whenever I heard about another church that had hit a landmark uh, point in their development that we hadn't been able to hit yet, I, it really bugged me. It really grated on me. And again, for the most part, I kept it under the surface. Because uh, I'm far too socially uh, aware to speak that aloud. But I'll tell you one person who knew, in addition to the Lord, Suzanne knew. And she could see it. She could see me simmering at times. Those know us best, they always know the truth, don't they? And then what, uh, one night, I don't remember what triggered it, but finally I, I, the treadmill was just going so fast and I just couldn't seem to stay on it anymore and I was so frustrated and discouraged and I remember collapsing onto the sofa and I was crying, and I'm not talking about just a little tear. I'm talking about ugly crying and snorting and, and, and saying all these things that were wrong and why it was wrong. And, and then I began to, to really kind of confess aloud these feelings that, that I realized were so pride-filled. And I spoke all those things aloud. And after I finally emptied the tank of all that gunk, Suzanne did the greatest thing. She came over and sat beside me on the sofa and she put her arms around me and she said something I never would have expected. She said, you know, I have never been prouder of you than I am right this minute. Because Ken, now that you've gotten out in the open and before God, what 
some of us kind of knew was already irking you and driving you. Now God can bless us. Now he can bless you. Now he can bless the church. Now he can bless our marriage. She said, I've never been prouder. That was a pivotal night for me. Very freeing, very liberating. And I wish it was the final bout I ever had with pride. And that I could say, well, so I got that one licked. <laughs> well, as you'll hear momentarily, I, I didn't. But that was a pivotal moment. So friends, watch out. When you have that simmering discontentment, I guarantee you there's some pride lurking inside of you that you're going to need to have the Lord pull out of you and free you from and liberate you from, or else you're going to suffer and others are going to suffer because God stands opposed to the proud. It always breeds discontentment. I'll tell you a second thing if you're a note taker. Pride always destroys unity. It tears apart unity. How many are the teams in sports that surely had been loaded with athletes, star athletes that could have gone very far, but one of them got the big head. Said, in essence, I think I'm a little bit bigger. I'm a little bit more important. I need to be a little bit more the star than the others. Or I need a little bit more money. And this is driving them. And I'll tell you, it tears teams apart. It's terribly destructive. When it comes to the team of Moses and Miriam and Aaron, the three musketeers up to that point, something changed, something snapped. After Numbers 12, we never read about Miriam again, except about the account that talked about when she died and about a prophet who says, remember what God did to Miriam. Why? Because when pride slips in, unity is destroyed. I'll tell you a story to illustrate that you, if you've been here four or five years, you heard me tell some years ago. And it bears retelling, although it's as embarrassing as the first one. It was a hot summer night in August. I remember Suzanne was pregnant. I don't remember which one, but she was pregnant with one of them. And very pregnant, because both were born in September. And so she was uh, near. Um, and uh, I had preached all that day. Back then we had an evening service as well on Sundays. And I was tired, but I wanted to be a good husband and I wanted to get her comfortable and, and get all the things she needed before I went to bed. And the air conditioning went out. And it was sweltering and it was humid and it was Houston in August. And but... No worry, I just remembered, wait a second, do you know, I, a few months ago when they were here working on our, I signed up for the VIP package. I gave them $199, so I'm VIP, baby. You just watch what happens here. So I picked up the phone and I called, it to, to, I figured she's just gonna say, we'll just be over in a jiffy because you're VIP. That's not what she said. I called over and I said, hi, I'm Ken Werlein. We, we're having a problem, we need to send somebody. Well, she said, Mr. Werlein, I'm terribly sorry. 
but it's Sunday and we have limited staff. And um, I said, well, <laughs> but, but I did pay $199, right? And so you can probably move me up a bit, can't you? She said, I'm afraid I can't because there's others who are in the same situation and our few technicians that are working tonight, they, they called in ahead of you. So there's a long list of homes ahead of you. As soon as we can be there, it's tomorrow morning. That was not what I'd signed up for with the VIP package, mind you. I told her, uh, finally, after my patience had run out, you listen to me now. My wife is very pregnant. I am very tired, and it is very hot. <laughs> and you better send somebody over here right now and get them in our house, because I paid $199 and I'm demanding you give me VIP service right now. And again, she started, and I, well, Mr. Whirlin, again, I'm, she started, at which point I went, hung up, looked at Suzanne and crossed the room and she said, well, that was one way to go about it. <laughs> you say, well, I don't see how that illustrates the breaking of unity. Oh, it didn't yet. Unbeknownst to me, something would happen a couple of weeks later. My assistant Janice handed me a, a printed out email from a person in the church. She said, I, I guess you're going to need to look at this now. I read it. She wrote, please remove my name from the Faith Bridge rolls. I'll not be coming back. Several weeks ago, Pastor Ken called me at the air conditioning company where I work. He never realized who I was, and I never told him. But after the way he spoke to me that evening, I don't think I could ever listen to him preach again with a clear mind. Oh. I was crushed. I tried to reach out to her by phone and sending notes and emails and apologizing in voice machines, and, but to no avail. What had happened in that moment? My pride had prompted me to unload on somebody I thought I deserved better from than she was giving me. And it snapped the relationship that had existed. I wasn't close with her, but I certainly knew who she was. We would say hello on Sundays. It snapped the relationship between us. It snapped her relationship with Faithbridge. I've prayed any number of times, oh Lord, please don't let it have snapped her relationship with you, that she doesn't trust in you now or something along those lines. The point is, Pride is destructive, and it tears things apart. It destroys so many marriages. At the root of every marriage that's dissolving, there's pride in there. One person just could said, I deserve better, and I can't stand these sinful aspects of you, and I'm moving on, or this sort of thing. Pride destroys office places. There was unity and there was fulfillment and laughter and happiness and joy in the office. And then one person one day got a promotion, got an office move, got a salary increase, and something changed. Pride destroys unity. 
when we let it into our hearts. So it breeds discontentment. It destroys unity. And the third thing, if you're taking notes, it shuts off the flow of God's grace, pride does. It shuts off the flow of God's grace. And you know why? Because pride claims to be the author of the good things in your life. But we who follow Jesus know from James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And this is why God opposes the proud and shuts off his grace to the proud person. I hadn't noticed this until I was studying and giving credit where credit's due. I was reading some from Tim Keller. And he said, don't you see pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism. I said, that's interesting. What in the world does that mean? What is plagiarism? If, if you wrote a song or you wrote a piece of essay or a book or something, and I somehow got hold of it and snatched it up and put my name on the top by Ken Werline, what do we call that? We call that plagiarism. I'm trying to steal the glory that rightfully belongs to you. And ultimately, when we give into our prideful urges, don't you see, we're plagiarizing from God. Instead of saying, the blessings that I have, this that has happened to, to me, that is all because God and his goodness to Instead, what are we doing? We're plagiarizing. We're saying, yeah, I did that. I pulled that off. Yeah, yeah, accomplished that one too. Mm-hmm. To which God says, no, you did not. We push back instinctively. Well, no, really, I did, God. I mean, I did drive downtown every day, got there several minutes early, stayed late every day. I worked hard. I earned it. To which God says, wait a second. Who gave you the mind? Who gave you the body? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the wherewithal to get out of bed and to do what you did and to accomplish what you Who gave you those abilities? I gave you. Go back upstream to the beginnings of it and you'll realize I was the one. It was because of my grace that you were able to have the blessings that you have been enjoying. How could you plagiarize and say you did it? You didn't do it. I was doing it in you and for you and in and through you. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that God hasn't given you? The implied answer is nothing. We don't have anything that God hasn't given us. We're the beneficiaries of his amazing grace. And that being the case, how in the world could we boast as though it was ours? It belonged to us. Why was God so upset with Miriam? Because she wanted the glory. She was concluding, if it's true that behind every good man is a good woman, I'm the woman. Give me the glory I'm due. I want what I deserve. God says, you want what you deserve? I'll give you what you deserve now. And all of a sudden, she has leprosy. Until Aaron cries out to Moses and says, please pray, plead to God for, for our sister. Don't let this happen. And in his graciousness, Moses did intervene. And in God's graciousness, God did cause the leprosy to stop and reverse. Although she did have to stay outside the camp for seven days. 
but we never hear from her again. So it breaks, it breeds discontentment. Pride does. It breaks unity and it blocks the flow of God's grace. That's why we ought to be proud. So don't be. Let's pray. No, that, that wouldn't be fair if I just, now, now, don't you have a solution? I mean, isn't this remedies? We got to talk about some remedies for the seven deadly sins. I, I'm convinced I got it, but what do we do? Let me give you three R's briefly. The first one is this. You've got to recognize it. You've got to recognize, you've got to see it in yourself. Now, some of, many of you, hopefully, you've been listening and you're like, I know exactly where it is. You've been talking to me. I know where I'm proud. Some of you, you're deluding yourself. You know, I think I got to pass on this sermon. I don't think I really wrestle with that. Really? I would challenge you, if that's what you're feeling, go to Psalm 139 and pray some of the words that David prayed. He said, search my heart, O God, and show me if there's any way inside of me that is offensive. You pray that, and I guarantee you, you sit still for about a minute, maybe two minutes, without a sound, social media, and the radio, or anything. You sit in silence. You give him a minute, two max. He won't need more. <laughs> He'll bring surely something to your mind. And you'll know that's what I need to recognize. At least the second R, repent. That's just a fancy theological word. It means to turn around, to do a 180. I was going this direction, but I'm repenting by God's grace. Now I'm going to go this way. I'm not going to go this way anymore. That's what repenting means. And a, hardly a day goes by that we, well, never a day goes by that we don't need to repent we all have sin, but hardly a day goes by that you won't figure out if you'll just take the time to give it some thought and consideration and let the Lord speak to you, search your heart, you'll realize, man, pride is back again. But here's the problem, as I see it. It keeps popping up. When you put it down over here, it pops up over there. It's like smack -a -mole. Some of you, and I sometimes find myself, when will I not wrestle with this? I'll tell you when, in heaven. So what do we do in the meanwhile? Third R, re-gospel yourself. Re-gospel. What, I need to accept Jesus into my heart a second time, a third time, a tenth time? No, no, no. You don't need to accept the Lord. If you haven't accepted and trusted in Christ in the first place, you need to trust Christ in the first place, realizing that God, who is holy in whom there is no sin, had a heart of love for us, seeing us while we were yet sinners. He came into this world and he lived the life of sinless perfection we couldn't live, and he died the death of punishment that we deserved. And then he conquered the grave on the third day that we would never conquer so that we could have life. That's the good news. That's what gospel means. If you've never opened your heart to Jesus in the first place, you need to do that. But I'm saying re-gospel. You've got to re-gospel yourself. And that's because most of you say, well, I've trusted in Christ. I remember when I did that and I did, you know, no, no. You check out. All of us tend to check, well, yeah, I, I, I did it. I got the gospel. No, no, no. If you've got pride, you need to re-gospel yourself. 
What do I mean by re? You got to preach it again to yourself to remind yourself of what Christ has done for us. That in the same way Moses interceded for Miriam, Christ came into this world to intercede and to intervene for our sakes. But we have one in Jesus who's even better than Moses, who did once and for all what we could never do for ourselves. You say, but I still don't quite understand. How do I re-gospel? Let me illustrate. A few weeks ago, it was before Christmas, right? And the stress of the holidays, and you all know what it feels like. And I'd run over to the store, and it had been a long line, and so I work my way up to the line, and I'm looking at the time, and this thing needs to move along, it's not moving along, and feeling all those feelings, and, and finally it gets up to me. And she goes, oh, it's out of paper, the register. She said, I know there's some paper around here. Now, you know me, even if you're brand new today. At this point, you know me well enough to know what's going on inside of me. I'm going, do you need me to do a little coaching? You know, and let me show you how to run this place a little bit. But you know, this is what's going on. And right then, I felt the Holy Spirit say, remember that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. I had to remind myself, okay, I'm not perfect. I've lost the paper myself. I've made a mess of it. But he's given me grace upon grace upon grace. And with that, I was able to settle my soul, smile, take a deep breath and say, well, I'm, I'm sure you'll find it. And we'll get through this together. What do you do? You re-gospel yourself. Don't just look at what he did for you, Jesus. But remember what it looked like that he was a humble servant who, who washed feet, who gave second chances and third chances and tenth chances and hundredth and thousandth chances. And as you Remind yourself of this good news. See if your heart doesn't start to grow soft, compelling you once more to crucify your pride, to put it down, to let it be killed. I'll tell you one other thing that'll help. Even earlier, you were hearing about the, the ministry menu and the serve teams and and the grow groups, there's nothing like community that helps us keep our bearings down, that keeps us honest with ourselves and honest with God. There's nothing like serving other people. For, as a matter of fact, I was, I was studying 1 Peter 5, 6, and there's an old translation of the Bible called the J.B. Phillips Translation. Before there was Gene Peterson, the message, there was J.B. Phillips in his translation. It says, indeed, all of you should defer to one another and wear the overalls of humility, serving each other. Isn't that good? Put on the overalls of humility. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, if you'll daily re-gospel yourself over and over and over and put those 
overalls of humility back on, you'll find that you have now a new freedom to serve humbly, to love patiently, to forgive liberally, to make amends readily, and to laugh at yourself more cheerfully. So turn to him, turn to Christ once again. Again and again and again. For he and he alone is the only one who can be the remedy to this first of the seven deadly sins, pride. Let's turn to him now. Lord, thank you for um, the intriguing thought that those in the Middle Ages, like Gregory the Great, gave to um, this list. There really is something to it. You dig down deep underneath the more visible and apparent sins, and you swim back up to the headwaters of the little tricklings of sin, and you get to these seven. And you swim in further to the very first of them all, and it's always pride. Oh, God, I pray that you would free us from it. I pray it for us as a congregation. I pray it for individuals, all of us individually in our lives, in our marriages, in our workplaces, that as we go into this new year of 2020, you would make us humble people, always keeping an eye on you, Jesus, and what you've done for us and how patient you are with us and that you didn't quit on us, but that while we were yet sinners, you died for us and that you've come and give us life and liberation from these things that hold us hostage. Lord, my prayer is that you would give us freedom and liberation. I pray, Lord, for any who are here who have never said yes to you, Jesus, in the first place, that today might be their day, even in this quiet moment, that they'd say, yes, I want you, Jesus. I'm asking you to come into my heart. I want you to live and free me and liberate me and teach me what it means to follow after you and wash me from all unrighteousness and fill me full of your power and your spirit. And then for most of us, I pray that you'll give us the grace, Lord, in this coming week and all the weeks of this year to keep re-gospeling ourselves over and over and over to the end that we might be victorious over pride, walking humbly with you, our God. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.